At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be diving back into the book of Revelation. If you've been with us in 2022, you know that we began the year with a nine-part series that focused on the, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, in our study of Revelation, we have, we have seen that Revelation is a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And inside of Revelation, we learn a number of things about Jesus. In the first three chapters, we saw that Jesus is the Lord of the church. And in the next couple of chapters, in chapter 4 and 5, the series that we're beginning today, we're going to see that Jesus is also the Lord of heaven. And so we're going to be looking at that today and over the next three Sundays as we look at chapters 4 and 5. Now, when I say the Lord of heaven, uh, the, 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 the word that stands out there to us is heaven. Because heaven is a place that we want to go. It would be wonderful to visit. It would be awesome to be able to stay. And so heaven is a place that is of great interest to us. And so we, we should be interested when Jesus in John or in Revelation chapter 4 invites the apostle John to go and to visit heaven and to record what he sees and to communicate it with us. And so we have a picture of heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. But why is it that Jesus gives us a picture of heaven? There's a couple of different options related to that. One option is that Jesus gives us a revelation of heaven so that we would have something of an HGTV experience where we get a tour of a really nice home that we will never live in, but that we might know how the other half live. So it's possible that it's merely for our curiosity that Jesus allows us to see heaven so that we know where he is at right now. But there's a second possibility. And that second possibility is that Jesus reveals a vision of heaven so that we, you and I, might be encouraged. So that we might draw strength from the picture that is going to be described for us. And of those two options, friends, I strongly believe that the second is why it was given. Why does Jesus invite John to heaven? Why does he have him write it down? Because he wants to encourage you. And he wants to encourage me. Well, how will we be encouraged? Well, we need to begin our study so that we can see. And today we're going to be in part one as we look at the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter four, and we're going to see a picture of heaven. And then after I, I read those verses for us, we'll back up and make three observations about how you and I might be encouraged by what we see there. Revelation chapter four, beginning of verse one says this, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creature give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And so in Revelation 4, we have a description of what John sees when he goes and visits heaven. Now, how does this encourage us? Well, I want to point out three things today. What's the first one? The first thing I think we need to see is this. When we see hell on earth, we need to look to heaven. When we see hell on earth, we need to look to heaven. Now, we see this at the very first parts of chapter 4 in verse 1. See, the Apostle John is on the island of Patmos where he has been arrested and imprisoned doing hard labor because of his faith in Christ and his insistence on sharing that message. So John finds his body on Patmos. But one evening, he hears the voice of Jesus who invites him to go up into heaven, not physically. His body was still on Patmos, but as chapter two, the first part, or chapter four, verse two, the first part tells us, in spirit, he goes up into heaven to see this vision of heaven. Now, as he goes up into heaven to see this vision of heaven, we need to be reminded of what he was leaving behind on the earth, the context that John was living in. He was living in a time that really was somewhat of a hell on earth. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, first of all, all of the other apostles had died. All of John's good friends had already gone to be with the Lord, and they had not died as people who had grown old and, and retired to Del Boca Vista, right? They, 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 had, they had died because of their faith in Christ, because of their insistence of proclaiming that message, they had paid for that with their lives. And so John alone of the apostles is left alive at this time. And he might have been feeling quite lonely in his experience. Not only that, but the temple had been destroyed, the very symbol of their religion. Remember, all of the apostles, including John, were Jews. And in 70 AD, the Romans had come and sacked the city and destroyed the temple and had killed thousands of people in the process and sent thousands more away as slaves. And so it was a very unsettling time. Not only that, the churches that John and others were leading were experiencing challenges. In Revelation 2 and 3, we went through the letters that Jesus wrote to those churches. They weren't all experiencing great things. They all were dabbling in error and all kinds of other challenges. 
Not only that, but we've already mentioned John was imprisoned for his faith. And and the government that was leading the, the known world to John at that time was Rome, which was a terrible government. Godless in every way. Arresting Christians, lighting them on fire to to light their gardens so that they could have a party. That was who was in charge at this time. And false religion under that banner was the norm. People worshiping other gods, worshiping Caesar as God, as well as any number of other fake deities. And Christ did not yet return. The, the, the apostles had a hope that Jesus would come back. They had the promise that he would come back, and yet he had not come back yet. And so there would have been some concern. And lastly, we might just remember that John's time was running out well into his 80s or 90s at this time. John knows that his time on the earth is running short. In light of all of those things, it is possible, maybe even expected by us, that John would have been feeling some feelings of despair and discouragement as he looked around at what probably appeared to him to some degree to be hell on earth. Now, as I walk through that, I I, want to just quickly just ask you the question, as you look around your world today, do, do you have any sense that there's some hell on earth around you? Well, when you look at the, the, the worship of other gods or the worship of self, do, do you wonder where, where is this coming from? What is happening to the world around us? When you look at a culture that seems adrift and floating further away from God on the day, you, you feel like there is no one in charge, there's no one in control. What is happening to this world around us when things that we hold dear are mocked in the public square and when personal trials and challenges we're facing on every side? It's possible that we spend our time looking around the world around us, thinking, I feel like we're experiencing a little bit of hell on earth. When I, when I say that, uh, it should cause in you a longing or a desire for something better. And as a matter of fact, it's fascinating to me that when we look at the Scripture, the vision of heaven that is found in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is, is not unique there were other times and in other, other eras where God gave a vision of heaven to his people, or at least of heavenly beings. And every time God does that, it's always when the experiences and the circumstances of the earth were very challenged and very difficult. I want to point out just a few of those. The, the vision of heaven and what is the context on the earth when that vision of heaven comes. In Isaiah chapter 6, the, the passage that we began the, the, the service with, Isaiah is given a vision of heaven, but what was the earthly circumstances happening at that time? Well, good King Uzziah had died. There was political turmoil. There was uncertainty. Who was going to lead the nation? They were on the precipice of being headed into exile and punishment from God, and, and there would have been a great sense of despair among the people. And it is into that sense of despair that God gives a perspective of heaven. Not only that, but we see this in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel 1, there are these majestic beings that Ezekiel sees. Uh, There's a a glassy firmament that is around them. Does that sound familiar to anyone of the verses that we just read? Ezekiel sees that vision, but what was the earthly context that Ezekiel was going through? Well, the first few verses of Ezekiel's prophecy tell us it was in the third year of the exile. God's people have been carted off to a foreign land away from their ability to worship in the temple and away from their homeland 
There was a sense of despair, so God gives them a vision of heaven. Not only that, but we see in Daniel chapter 7, yet another of these visions of the heavenly places. Daniel also famously written during the time of the exile when God's people are experiencing some very difficult circumstances. Remember Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tossed in the fiery furnace. Daniel himself thrown into the lion's den because of their insistence on worshiping the one true God. And it is into that environment that Daniel has this vision of heavenly places and of the ancient of days. See, it is to those who are experiencing hell on earth that the vision of heaven comes. And if that's the pattern, it should not surprise us that in Revelation 4 and 5, with all of the challenges that John was experiencing in his day that we have detailed, and there are others, other things we could say, a vision of heaven comes. And so when we see hell on earth, we are invited to look to heaven. Now, the reason why I've felt led to dive into the book of Revelation this year is in part because of this truth. I'm guessing that over the last 30 months, at least at one moment or another, you have looked around and thought, what is going on in the world around us? This place feels like it is spinning wildly out of control. Is anyone driving this bus? Or are we going to careen off a cliff? Are things moving too fast, too slow? What is happening? Well, if you felt that way, friends, or if you feel that way even right now, we need to hear this invitation that says, though your body is in this world and you may see hell around you, look to heaven because there is some encouragement that we will gather from that gaze. And so if we are to look to heaven, what are we going to be encouraged as we look to heaven? What, how will we be encouraged? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that we look to heaven and see is that we get to see God Almighty on the throne. We get to see God Almighty on the throne. I love the very first thing that, that John tells us he sees when he gets to heaven. He says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, I was in heaven and there was a throne that stood in heaven. And there was one that was seated on the throne. The very first thing he sees is the throne of heaven. Now, what is the throne? Well, the throne is basically the driver's seat. It's the driver's seat. It's the driver's seat of the universe. The one who sits sovereign over the universe is going to be seated in that throne. And so though he is experiencing hell on earth, he gets to heaven and he looks and there is in fact a driver's seat. This is very important for us to see and for us to remember that there is a place of power in the universe. Now, when we hear the word throne, we, we often uh, think, well, that's just a very common word. And it is. It's common in our language. We use it often. Uh, and it's even common in the, in, the, in the scriptures. But I think it's really important for us to see just how common it is and how dominant it is inside the book of Revelation. And so I want to put up for you the entire text of Revelation chapter 4. Now, I put this up as an eye test for Mark Hardesty at the back. Mark, can you wave at me? Uh, this is so to see if you need those glasses that are on your face. Um, no, I don't put this up here for you to read it. I put this up here to, to simply make a point. I'm going to just show you everywhere in chapter 4 that the word throne appears. 
14 times. 14 times in Revelation 4, when there is a vision of heaven, what stood out the most? The throne, again and again and again. Now, inside of the book of Revelation, the word throne appears 46 times. 14 of them in chapter 4, 46 overall in Revelation. But friends, here's something that's even more amazing. When you look at the New Testament as a whole, the rest of the New Testament, save Revelation, only uses the word throne 15 times. So if you want to know what Revelation is about, this is a massive clue. What's Revelation about? Revelation is about who sits sovereign over the universe. Who is occupying the throne? Who is seated at the wheel with his feet on the pedals? Who controls the pace? Who's driving the bus? Friends, that's the the question that we ought to have when we see this throne in heaven. And I think that's the emphasis that John wants us to see. And in light of a world that feels like it's, it's just hell on earth, who is at the wheel driving this bus? Well, friends, we need to be encouraged and reminded that there is one who is seated there. When John sees the throne, he doesn't go, well, there's the throne, but nobody's on it. No, he says, there's a throne and there is someone on it. And the one who's on the throne, friends, is awesome. Awesome. And John tries to describe him. Now, quickly, who is this one on the throne? Well, I believe it is God the Father. It is God the Father who's on the throne. Why do I say that? Well, it's Jesus who invites him to come up. We'll see in chapter 5, Jesus appearing again in a little different place and description. So it's not him who is there on the throne. It's not the spirit that is on the throne. The spirit is represented by these flames in front of the throne. We'll talk about that in a moment. So the one who is seated on the throne is none other than God the Father. And when John looks at God the Father seated on the throne, he begins to try to describe him to us, but words just fail him. I think it's, it's actually fortuitous that this is before the day of cell phones because in, in cell phones, right, we, if this would have happened today, somebody would have pulled out their phone. John would have pulled out his phone and would have been like, I just want to video this, right? But this was so beautiful, so amazing, it would have broke his camera. It was that awesome. It was that great. And so John does his best with his words to describe what he sees. And what does he see? He sees one who had the appearance of jasper. Now, what does that mean? Well, we might think of jasper as uh, something maybe of a greenish hue or something like that. But the jasper, I think, that is referred to here when you look at the rest of the book of Revelation and how this word is used is somewhat of a diamond in its appearance. Glistening and gleaming and glowing. Value and glory and awesomeness. That's what he sees shimmering from there. Not that there just was a stone that was there, but he says, when it looked on there, there was one that had the appearance of a diamond. And also the appearance of carnelian. What is carnelian? Well, it was kind of a red-hued stone. What exactly does that mean? We don't know for sure, but it's just to demonstrate how glorious and awesome and mighty is the one who is on the throne. Not only that, but around that throne, it says there was a rainbow that was emerald in color, a little greenish rainbow around him. What's that all about? Friends, when I say rainbow, who do you most think of on earth? You think of Noah, right? In Noah's day. The rainbow was that which was associated with the mercy of God and his covenant that he made with people. 
And right there in the throne room of God, not only do we have this one who is so glorious and awesome and mighty that, that, that reminds us of holiness and, and justice and judgment and all of those kinds of things, but also there is a rainbow that appears there. So there is a visual representation for John and a visual reminder in the very throne room of God of his mercy and his grace and his commitment and faithfulness to his people. He looks and he sees this one who is seated there. There is one who has his hands on the wheel. There is one whose feet are being appropriately placed on the gas and the brake to drive this world at just the proper pace towards its rightful conclusion. In front of him, there are these seven torches. I mentioned that earlier. Back in chapter one in our study, we saw that those seven torches are, just as it says here, they are representative of the seven spirits of God, the full Holy Spirit of God present in the very throne room of God the Father in heaven. So we have God the Son inviting them to come. We have God the Father on the throne. We have God the Spirit in front. We have blessed Trinity right there in the throne room of God. And then before them is a a sea of glass, Now, what is this sea of glass? I'm going to be honest with you. I I really don't know. But but I'll give you my best understanding of it. The sea of glass, friends, is something that would have been expected in in a place of worship for someone in John's environment. You see, in the temple, there was a sea. Now, it wasn't a sea like we think of a sea. We use the word sea to refer to, you know, an ocean, right? This vast and, and big thing. But in the temple, there was a a sea that was a place where there was washing that was done by the priests before they performed their service and their duty. And so there's a sea before the throne. But it's interesting that this, this sea is not made up of water. It's made up of crystal or of glass. It's solid. Why? Because in heaven, there's no need to cleanse anymore. And so we have this sea there. But it's also possible that this sea is there just showing a separation from God and everything else in the sense of there is one who is awesome, there is one who is mighty, and he is greater than all else. I think that is echoed in the worship that is given of him there, where it is said of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God is lifted up as holy. Now, why is it repeated three times? The word holy is repeated three times because that's a way in the original language to indicate the maximum, holy to the max, the most holy thing ever, holy, holy, holy. But it's also the idea of seeing something everywhere they look. You know, you can imagine if you go someplace that's really beautiful and you have a moment as you're in that beautiful place where you might look around and go, wow, wow, wow. You can imagine these these heavenly beings in heaven, before God, and for all time, they keep going, holy, holy, holy. Everything you do is holy. And it demonstrates the fact that you are the almighty God who sits over all the universe. See, friends, God has not shown back up on this earth to judge it yet because he is somehow deficient or not powerful enough to do so. But God has waited because he is patient, giving us time to repent. We see in the very throne room of God, the worship of God. 
Now, being reminded of who sits on the throne ought to be of great encouragement to you and me. Because not only do we live in a world that reminds us of hell from time to time, but we we also live in a world where there are challenges that we face. There are diagnoses of disease and pronouncement that those diseases are headed towards death. When you get that cancer diagnosis, how do you how do you proceed? Well, let me just encourage you to follow this doorway into heaven and see that there is one who is seated there and in control and sovereign. I had a professor at seminary, Howard Hendricks, who had a cancer diagnosis while I was there and people were comforting him. And I remember Dr. Hendricks saying and telling the story about how the doctor came in and told of the cancer diagnosis. And Dr. Hendricks turned to his wife, Jean, and he said, well, Jean, I'm guessing one of two things. Either God is in control or he isn't. And I'm guessing that he is. And they walked out and they walked by faith through that season that lay ahead. Friends, how do we walk forward in faith in light of difficult news? We, we do so with a knowledge of who is on the throne. How do we face a, a culture in a world that is persecuting Christians? You know, why, why do we, when we pray for the team going to South Asia, why do we mention their first name and not their last? Why do we call it South Asia and not mention the country? Why do we not mention the organization that they're going with? Well, it's because of the persecution that happens of believers in that region of the world. How, how do we have a hope that, that something good might come of this because we know who's seated on the throne? We follow this doorway into heaven and we remember that reality and it encourages us in the meantime. Friends, this has many, many applications for us, but when we face hell on earth, we need to follow through this doorway to heaven to see that there is one at the throne and he's got his hands on the wheel. Be encouraged, church. But a third thing that we need to see, and that is that as we look to heaven, we also need to see the proper response for you and me. We need to see the proper response for you and me. And we see this in the way that those respond in heaven. Now, who are those who are in heaven that are demonstrated in this vision? Well, the first group that we see is this group of elders. It says there are 24 elders who are in heaven and they are seated on thrones. Well, who are these elders? Well, friends, I just want to say that that biblical scholars don't agree on this. There are a number of different perspectives on who they are. Um, But I am going to share with you who I think that they are. I think that they are people who have died before and have gone to heaven. Does that mean that there were only 24 people that have been saved? No. They're representatives of those who have been saved. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Chronicles, it talks about the priests being divided into 24 different orders that had representatives that would serve in the temple of God on rotation. I think what we see here is a picture of a heavenly throne room where this work of the heavenly temple is being attended to by 24 representatives of people. Now, who are those people? Well, I think that they could be anyone who is saved up to this point, but I think that there's a special hint inside of this that points to these being those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, why do I think that? I think that because of how they are described. They're talked about seated on thrones, they're talked about wearing white garments, and they're talked about wearing golden crowns. Now, where have we heard thrones, white garments, and golden crowns? 
I realize it's been a few weeks, but think back to those letters to the churches. Jesus gave a number of, of words of encouragement. He says, if you conquer, I will give to you what? I'll give you a crown, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. I'll give you a white robe, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. And you will sit with a throne with me as we reign, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. On the heels of those letters, Jesus invites John to heaven. And it's almost like you can imagine him elbowing him going, see, I told you. Stick with me and look at how I will reward you in eternity. It's worth it to trust and to follow Christ. And so we see this this representative group of believers in Jesus in heaven. Do you want to get to heaven? Do you want more than just a description? Friends, trust Christ. And there's this hope of eternity. But there's others in heaven. Who are they? Well, it's these four living creatures. Well, who are the four living creatures? Well, it seems clear that there's some kind of an angelic being, but, but, but what are they doing and what do they represent? Again, you're not going to be surprised. Biblical scholars disagree about this as well. But let me tell you what I think that they represent. I think that they are representative of all of creation. Why? Because of how they're described. Now, this is not saying that they are a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, but it talks about them having some of the appearance of these things. And so these, these four beings are attending to God in heaven, and they are singing praise to God in heaven. And they look, one, like a lion, the, the king of all beasts, the king of the jungle, right? And the ox, the king of the domesticated animals, And man, the king of intellect among the created beings of God. And the eagle, the king of the air. We have here four beings that are symbolic of all of creation. And in heaven, they they exist and they are glorifying God. Now, there's further evidence that their presence talks of creation and reminds of creation in the worship that they inspire. So as they're leading this, this worship, how do the elders respond they, they respond and say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you what? You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we have this, this picture of the created order in heaven giving praise and honor to God the Father. And it's inspiring worship from those like you and me who have gone before us who are seated in heaven, praising God for his creative power in all things. Now, these creatures are described as having wings and eyes. Six wings, that's a lot of wings. Six more than I got. Six wings. And full of eyes. I've only got two. They got eyes everywhere. They can see everything. Well, well, what what is the purpose of this description? Well, with the wings, they can go anywhere. And with the eyes, they can see everything. And they have been in the presence of God for a very long time. And so they've seen it. They've been there. What is their testimony about who God is? He's holy. He's holy. He's holy. God, you're holy. You've you've never made a mistake. You've never been morally compromised. 
You are holy, you are awesome, and you are perfect. And you are almighty, you can do everything. We have seen you do things throughout the history of creation that are absolutely unbelievable. That's what these beings are, are, are communicating as they fly, and they, they've seen it all, they've been there, and they've given testimony to what they have seen God do. So friends, we have it on good source that God is holy and he is almighty. And so given that, what's the response? Well, the proper response is the response of worship. They, they fall down before him. They fall down before him. They don't stand up. They don't cling to their crown and go, I'm so glad I'm here. I'm going to live this personal, individualized existence in eternity and just enjoy my stuff and my reward. No, what do they do? They're focused on God the Father. They drop to their knees. They cast their crowns before him. They say, whatever we have, it is nothing compared to you and all that you are. They're absolutely focused on him for eternity. Friends, this is the picture of what it looks like for us to worship If this is how we will worship in eternity, is this indicative of the way that we're living our lives now? Warren Wiersbe talks about a definition of worship, and he says this. He says, it worship means to use all that we are and have to praise God for all that he is and does. Worship is not just a song. Singing is important, but worship is not just a song. That's really cute, isn't it? Let me see if I can get that out of there. I'm not sure how to do that. Never mind. Worship, worship, friends, worship uh, is not just, worship is not just singing. Worship is a full response from all that we are to all that God is. It will impact our obedience. It will impact the way we handle money. It impacts the things that we adore, the things we have affection for. It will, it will impact the direction that our life takes, the way that we approach different areas and venues of our life. If, if we rightly see God for who he is, then we will rightly lay our lives down in obedience and adoration of him. If that's where we will spend forever, as we see this picture, is that how we live our lives today? Now, as we prepare to wrap up, I want to point out two things that are previews of where we're headed. The first thing I want to point out is this. There's this, this, this amazing little thing that's happening around the throne. And that amazing thing that is happening around the throne is that there is rumbling in, in, of, of thunder and peals of lightning. Why are they there? Well, we live in Oklahoma. When, when thunder and lightning come, what do you know is going to follow? the storm. The thunder and lightning that is there is indicative of what is to come. Because there is a holy one on the throne, what must soon take place? That is the judgment of the earth. We'll get there eventually. The second thing that I think is important for us to see is where is the Lord of heaven? I mean, we've seen God the Father on the throne. We've seen the, the, the spirit in the flame, but, but where is Jesus in all of this? After the invitation, where is he? Well, friends, come back the next two weeks and we'll see. Because chapter five is focused on the Lamb of God. 
Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for just this opportunity to to worship and to lift up your name today. We pray that you would be honored as we not only hear this message, but we respond in faith. And we thank you for this picture that you have given to us, that it might encourage us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.